Hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, I am always uh, I, I'm always thankful to welcome a man who has been with us since the beginning, uh, uh, started our show off, and uh, that is the Brooklyn Borough historian Ron Schweiger. Uh, Ron, thank you so much for joining us. Ron, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, Ron, I can hear Hello? you now. How you doing? Okay. Ron, how you doing today? I'm fine. Can you hear me? I can, we, we can all hear you. Okay, <laughs> good. Ron, before we get started on Brighton Beach, uh, I, I'm very much looking forward to what you have to say, but uh, unfortunately we lost your counterpart from the first episode this weekend, uh, Larry King, due to COVID. And, and I was wondering if you could just touch upon your memories of Larry uh, before we get going. Well, uh, as those listeners who are listening right now, uh, Larry was a native Brooklynite and a full-fledged Brooklyn Dodger baseball fan, and he took that with him when he went to California and uh, started rooting for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He uh, lived in the Bensonhurst neighborhood of Brooklyn, and uh, he and his friends used to hang out on what they would call the corner and the corner was the corner, the intersection of 86th Street and Bay Parkway in Bensonhurst. He went to Lafayette High School, and, uh, and I think, I'm not sure, he, he may have been a member of the, the JCH, the Jewish Community House on Bay Parkway and 79th Street. In fact, that's where my parents met in, uh, in the um, middle 1930s. My parents met there. And they got married in 1938. It's a whole other story behind that. I won't go into it right now. <laughs> but um, Larry always uh, mentioned that he was from Brooklyn, uh, as were many other very famous entertainers, sports figures, literary geniuses, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, it's a shame that uh, we've lost an, another well-spoken individual represented from Brooklyn. And incidentally... Um, President Biden's uh, people that work with him now, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci and Janet Yellen. Now, Janet is Jewish. Anthony is Italian. Uh, and um, they both were from uh, Bensonhurst in Brooklyn, Bensonhurst and Bay Ridge. And, it, and they're almost about the same age. And it's possible that they may have crossed paths as young people in the Bensonhurst neighborhood without even realizing it, because they probably lived no more than a, a mile or two from each other growing up in Brooklyn. Pretty amazing. There are, there are so many uh, uh, B neighborhoods, uh, neighborhoods that start with the letter B in Brooklyn. And we, of course, yeah. will be uh, discussing Brighton Beach today. Uh, and again, I, I want to give uh, condolences to the, uh, the King family. And, and just on a personal note, it, it was unbelievable that such a, a high profile individual was there for you know gave me his time at the very beginning and of course uh, you know we greatly appreciate that you 
Ron, have also been with us uh, from the very beginning. And so uh, my heart goes out to the King family, and uh, the condolences go out as well. Uh, it's a very sad weekend, and, and we keep losing so many names uh, this the past year, uh, both in, in terms of entertainment as well as uh, uh as well as sports and uh, baseball itself. And, of course, a lot of you out there are, are suffering and have, have had a lot of loss because of this disease. Uh, so just our hearts go out to you. And, and one way or another, we thank you for continuing to come back and, and listen to the research process and be there with us as active members of this process. It's uh, always been um, my but, pleasure. And, and, I enjoy it very much. Uh, incidentally, Larry King's his real name was Larry Zeiger, Z-E-I-G-E-R. And when he went into broadcasting in radio in Miami in, uh, in his very early days of, in the entertainment business as a broadcaster, he changed his name from Zeiger to King. And he certainly became the king of um, interviews, um, interviewing people um, for decades, many, many decades. And um, like I said, it's a shame we've lost another another wonderful person in the entertainment field. And, you know, it, it was uh, very uh, fortuitous and, and serendipitous that he was able to give his voice to us one last time. And I forget exactly whether it was October or November, but it was in the fall, and we were able to discuss uh, Brooklyn and the Dodgers one more time. So, again, Wherever you are, Larry, thank you so much for giving your time and, and uh, your voice to our audience and myself. And, uh, it, you know, my heart hurts right now, but, you know, as, as the saying goes, c'est la vie, such is life. So uh, we, um, we move on what, and um, go ahead, Ron. One, one last thing about Larry King. He wrote a book a number of years ago, um, and the front cover of the book, has a, a photograph of him sitting on a Brooklyn brownstone on the steps wearing a Brooklyn jacket. And the title of the book is, and if any of you can get a hold of this book, uh, I don't know if it's still in print or not, but you can always find out. Uh, the name of the book is, If You're From Brooklyn, Everything Else Is Tokyo. <laughs> and that's by Larry King. I'm going to be okay. looking it up right now. Uh, and, and while I do... Uh, let's start on Brighton Beach, and I think for so many people, uh, it, I, I think the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is Neil Simon's Brighton Beach memoirs when it comes to pop culture and Brighton Beach itself. Uh, but let's go all the way back before Neil Simon wrote that play, uh, which was a trilogy of plays. Um, let, let's go all the way back, because you, you always have such amazing knowledge on, on the history of Brooklyn and all these neighborhoods going all the way back to, to when the Native Americans were here? Well, uh, when the Native Americans were here, they were primarily the Canarsie Indians, and there was another tribe, the, the Rockaway Indians. Uh, of course, in Brooklyn, you have um, Rockaway Avenue, Rockaway Boulevard, um, and in Queens uh, is uh, uh, the Rockaways out in Queens by the beach area. Um, but... Um, Brighton gets its name from actually Brighton, England. And Brighton, England um, was near an area of, called Graves End in England, which was a beach resort. And when Brighton Beach became popular here in Brooklyn, it too became a beach resort. Um, 
If we go back to um, the late 1800s, from the middle to the late 1800s, um, there was one fellow who was the, the, um, the county commissioner for the county of Gravesend. Uh, not the county, but the, the, the uh, village of Gravesend here in Brooklyn. There were five Dutch towns um, and one English town. The English town was Gravesend, founded by a woman in the 1640s. Her name was Lady Deborah Moody. And uh, Brighton Beach, Coney Island, Sheepshead Bay, Manhattan Beach, that whole area um, was and still is part of the area known as Gravesend. And it extends a little further as well. But the town commissioner of Gravesend was a fellow named John McCain. Now, this is not the John McCain um, from Arizona who passed away recently, the, the senator from Arizona. Um, but this John McCain from Gravesend, he was a very notorious, um, uh, underhanded, nefarious individual who um, had an iron fist rule over the, over the town. And um, he actually sold land to a gentleman named William Stilwell. Now, of course, those of you who know Brooklyn and Coney Island, you know Stilwell Avenue, which is right next to Nathan's, of course. Um, William Stilwell helped establish um, Brighton Beach. Um, William Stilwell, in, in turn, sold the eastern half of his area to a gentleman named Austin Corbin. And Austin Corbin developed Manhattan Beach. Um, now, John McCain was, like I said, very notorious. Um, when Brooklyn became part of New York City, the five boroughs, in 1898, the city wanted to turn the Coney Island, Brighton Beach area into a public park. And John McCain fought it. He wanted it to be private under his jurisdiction because he was the town commissioner of Gravesend. Well, there was a book that came out uh, called um, Sodom by the Sea. And in that book, there's a quote of John McCain. It says that prostitution is good. <laughs> this was John McCain, the gentleman that sold land to William Stilwell to help create Brighton Beach. Now, at the turn of the century, not this century, of course, but the, the one way back, way back then, um, Brooklyn had the biggest and most popular resort in the United States, Brighton Beach, Manhattan Beach, Sheepshead Bay, and Coney Island. People came from all over the United States and from Europe, and they came here because that area of Brighton Beach, Manhattan Beach, Sheepshead Bay, and Coney Island, there were four major hotels and scores of smaller hotels. There were three horse racing tracks. There was a vaudeville theater on Ocean Parkway right near the boardwalk called the New Brighton Theater. And, and I have a postcard that says high class of vaudeville. All right. So this was the resort area and Brighton Beach was a very, very big part of it. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that lasted probably until the late, till, well, first of all, horse racing disappeared after 1910. Governor Hughes of New York State outlawed betting at the racetracks. He was anti-gambling. So the Sheepshead Bay racetrack, 
the Brighton Beach Racetrack, and the Gravesend Racetrack. Now, the Gravesend Racetrack was further north, up Ocean Parkway, between Kings Highway and, um, let's say, Avenue U. Between Kings Highway and Avenue U, between McDonald Avenue and Ocean Parkway, you had the Gravesend Racetrack. But if we get down to the absolute resort area, the Sheepshead Bay Racetrack, which was the largest of the three tracks, that was located um, from Gravesend Neck Road on the north to Voorhees Avenue on the south, Ocean Avenue on the west, and around Bragg Street or Brigham Street on the east. That was the, um, the Sheepshead Bay track, the larger. It was also known as the Coney Island Jockey Club. Now, the Brighton Beach Racetrack was located from Neptune Avenue on the north to Brighton Beach Avenue on the south, Ocean Parkway on the west, and Coney Island Avenue on the east. And um, you had thoroughbred horse racing, and uh, none other than Diamond Jim Brady would uh, attend some of these races. And uh, so this is what the resort area was all about. And Brighton Beach was a very, very big part of it. Um, one of the owners of the Brighton Beach track was a guy named William Engman, E-N-G-E-M-A-N. Uh, maybe I think there's, I saw it with one N and I've seen the name with two N's on it. So take your pick, William Engman. And there was, um, there were a lot of, um, well, back in the day, they weren't African-American, they were Negro. And um, many of the workers at the tracks were Negro workers. They were, some of them, believe it or not, were jockeys. Some of them were horse groomers and trainers. And um, so one of the workers at the, at the Sheepshead Bay track, she, her name was Mother Maria Fisher, and she sold her homemade cakes and pies at the Sheepshead Bay track. And she approached William Engman, one of the owners of the Brighton Beach track, and said, can you please ask some of your friends at the Sheepshead Bay track if they can set aside a small piece of property at the far end of the track so the Negro workers can worship and have a little chapel built so that they can worship on Sundays? Because the Negro workers did not worship in the white churches. Well, William Engman spoke to one of the owners of the Sheepshead Bay track, a guy named uh, Leonard Jerome. In fact, Jerome Avenue in Sheepshead Bay is named after Leonard Jerome. And um, a small piece of land was set aside at the far end of the, Brighton, uh, at the, the Sheepshead Bay track so that the black workers at the three tracks could worship on Sundays. And uh, that little church um, is called the First Baptist Church of Sheepshead Bay. It opened in 1901. And it still exists today. And it's on East 15th Street between Avenue X and Gravesend Neck Road. And it backs the subway tracks, the B and the Q subway tracks. And right over the entrance to the church, the entrance doorway, it says Mother Maria Fisher entrance. So this goes all the way back. And Mr. Engman, um, with the help of one of the owners of the Sheepshead Bay track, Leonard Jerome, um, helped establish the First Baptist Church of Sheepshead Bay, which is still in existence today. And incidentally, for your the listeners, Leonard Jerome 
owned another racetrack in the Bronx called Jerome Park. And he built Jerome Avenue in the Bronx, which took you directly to his Jerome Park in the Bronx. And of course, Sheepshead Bay has Jerome Avenue, also named after him. And here's a little irony, a little American history. Leonard Jerome and his wife had an absolutely lovely daughter named Jenny, Jenny Jerome. Lovely young lady. And she was introduced to a very handsome English gentleman named Lord Randolph Churchill. They fell in love and eventually moved to England. And Jenny from Brooklyn gave birth to Winston Churchill. But Winston did not have a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking, what's so amazing about uh, technology now is that I can go right there to the corner that you were discussing. And so the, the church building, is this the one basically right next to the elevated train line? Yes, it absolutely. The entrance faces East 15th Street, and the rear of the church backs up against the abutment of the the, the subway tracks. Very nice. Uh, so yeah, be in the how did how did um, Brighton Beach become a predominantly Jewish neighborhood? It seemed like going all the way back to the late 1800s with uh, when uh, uh, Ellis Island was such a, a an immigration center uh, that that's basically when the the roots began, uh, and it it has basically traveled all the way till now. Well, um, there was an influx of um, immigrants from Europe that came from the 1870s and 1880s right until the 1920s. Uh, I know my father came from Poland when he was four years old with my grandmother um, in 1917. Now, my wife grew up in Brighton Beach on Brighton 8th Street, and her grandmother lived on Brighton 6th Street. And her grandmother, um, in the 1940s, I believe, lived on Brighton 6th Street, um, 1930s and 40s. She was a seamstress. She had an old sewing machine, which we have now in our basement, which is not being used. <laughs> and, um, um, so that, and, and she was from Russia. And it was, um, there was a small influx of Russian Jews in those days. But the big influx came after 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Uh, but let's go back a little bit. What happened in Brighton Beach and in the Coney Island area and in, in New York City in general? In the 1970s, there was a 60s and 70s, there was a major recession. Coney Island was, was bad. Uh, business was bad. Um, and, and in the 1960s and 70s, when jet travel became more popular, um, people started going to Europe for vacation. Um, a lot of people were also driving up to the Catskills, to the, to the resort hotels in the Catskills in the 1940s and 50s and would spend the summer there. So Brighton Beach started to fall down. Coney Island started to fall down beginning in the 60s and 70s. Um, but in 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union allowed many, many Russians, both Jewish and non-Jews, to emigrate into the United States. And many of them settled in Brighton Beach because it reminded them of a re beach resort 
that they would go to in Russia, and that resort was Odessa. And today, Brighton Beach has a nickname, and some, some of the posters hanging up on the lamppost say, Little Odessa by the Sea, and that's Brighton Beach today. Um, during the recession in the 70s and 80s, Brighton Beach had many boarded-up storefronts. Businesses had closed. Um, you could get an apartment for a song and a dance, so it was pretty bad. But the collapse of the Soviet Union was a shot in the arm for the resurrection of the Brighton Beach area. Um, speaking of a shot in the, in the arm, I hope everyone is getting their vaccine shots when it becomes available. My wife and I got ours last week, our first shot, and we're getting our second shot, um, I think, on February 9th. Hopefully, if they get more vaccines uh, in here. But getting back to Brighton. Well, might, yeah, might be yeah, ahead, the, the birthday gift to me, apparently, by the way. February 9th is my birthday, just to put, throw that out there. <laughs> well, well, my birthday is nine days after that on the 18th. There you go. Nine, it's my favorite number, number nine. So, uh, But obviously, okay. <laughs> I am digressing a little bit. Uh, I, I, if you could go back to the Brighton Beach Hotel, there's, there's a lot of information out there about this place. It seemed to be one of the, one of the highlights of the biggest resort town in America uh, was the Brighton Beach Hotel. That is correct. Now, I mentioned earlier, Sam, that there were four major hotels. Two of them were in Manhattan Beach, and they were built by Austin Corbin, who bought the land to develop Manhattan Beach from William Stilwell, who bought land from John McCain. Okay, so there's the, the sequence. Um, the two hotels in Manhattan Beach were the Manhattan Beach Hotel, which opened, I think, in, 19, uh, in 1879, and the Oriental Hotel, which opened, I believe, in 1880. Um, the Brighton Beach Hotel opened in 1879, and adjacent to the Brighton Beach Hotel, by the way, the Brighton Beach Hotel was located right at the very end of Coney Island Avenue, right where Coney Island Avenue ends at the boardwalk. That's where the Brighton Beach Hotel was located. Uh, those of you who know that area, the, the, short, the short front Y is located on the site where the Brighton Beach Hotel once stood. And it stood there from 1879 till I believe 1923 or 1924, and then it was taken down. Um, as I mentioned earlier, horse racing stopped after 1910 because Governor Hughes of New York State outlawed betting at the racetracks. So a lot of the people, um, including the very wealthy people, stopped coming to the hotels because the racetracks closed. But two of the racetracks, the Sheepshead Bay racetrack and the Brighton Beach racetrack, went over to automobile racing because in 1910, there was a new fangdangle contraption called the automobile. And that's what happened to the Sheepshead Bay and Brighton Beach track. They went over to automobile racing, but it only lasted until the late 19-teens. And incidentally, one of the gentlemen who raced at the Brighton Beach and the Sheepshead Bay track was a gentleman named Louis Chevrolet. Now, I don't know whether he won the race, but Mr. Chevrolet and his brother went on to bigger and better things. And those of you who are listening, how many of you own a Chevrolet automobile? Well, it started at the Brighton Beach and Sheepshead Bay racetracks where 
the Chevrolet brothers raced. A little interesting footnote right there. Yeah, I'm I'm actually currently in a Ford myself, which uh, does not necessarily have a great foundation of history when it comes to the Jewish population. Uh, but That's I still true. think uh, the, the the current uh, entity makes uh, excellent cars. But that that's it, it, whether it's Churchill or Chevrolet, you it, it's these tie-ins, these six degrees or less of separation to all these American staples. It's it's pretty unbelievable. One uh, that they exist, and two the way you're able to connect the dots. Well, here's another connection, um, which is adjacent to Brighton Beach and the Sheepshead Bay racetrack. Um, Those of you who are listening, um, um, how many of you went to the United Artists Movie Theater, which is right off the Belt Parkway and Knapp Street, right in the Sheepshead Bay area? Um, When you come down Knapp Street, you make a turn onto a street to go into the parking lot for the movie theater. Okay. Now the theater obviously is closed now, but hopefully, hopefully by spring or summer, we'll be able to go see theater, uh, movies at the theaters again. Hopefully um, that street that you turn onto to get into the parking lot is called Harkness Avenue. Now who was Harkness? Well, Harry Harkness bought the Sheepshead Bay, the property of the Sheepshead Bay racetrack after horse racing stopped and he established the Harkness Sheepshead Bay Speedway. And that's where the automobile racing occurred. So that's where the name Harkness Avenue comes from, from Harry Harkness. So I'm sure how many, how many people who are listening now are looking up and saying, wow, I didn't know that. Well, there's a little history <laughs> right there. Well, so I'm, I'm looking at the corner right now on Google maps and one of the things that's just unfortunate uh, about the corner is is the way that so many different like little strip malls you know take away some of the uniqueness of all of America and all the different spots of America much less this spot but if you could tell me exactly where this uh the the racetrack that you're talking about was I'm guessing it's where and I'm trying to see what the Amity uh the Amity school would it have been there um well, let's put it this way. If you go down Nostrand Avenue and Avenue Y, that would be about the center of the track itself. Now, the, the entire property of the racetrack stretched from Ocean Avenue on the west to around Bragg Street on the east in Sheepshead Bay hmm. and uh, Voorhees Avenue on the north. and I'm sorry, Voorhees Avenue on the south and Graves and Neck Road on the north. That was the entire property of the, the track complex, which included the stalls, the paddocks, uh, um, and other buildings and so on. But the actual track, of course, was a, a, an oval track. And um, I have a postcard uh, from 1907 that shows horses racing on the track, and the name of the race was called the, the, uh, the Suburban was the name of the race. And if I'm not mistaken, that race is still run today at, at Aqueduct Racetrack. I'm not sure about that. Hmm. But where the horses are in that photograph would be roughly Nostrand Avenue, right in front of where Seniors Restaurant used to be. 
those people who remember Seniors Restaurant on Nostrand Avenue, uh, around Avenue Y. Okay. Well, it's so, interesting. Uh, uh, um, looking at the Google Maps, uh, right near the movie theater that you were discussing at, uh, at the corner of Knapp Street and Harkness Avenue, right down the yeah. road is SNY Performance Racing Car Parts Store. Uh, so, it, as you were saying, racing car. Obviously, I don't think there's a track there anymore. But I thought it was uh, ironic that there there is a place selling quote unquote racing car parts right near where you were uh, where this track was, right across from well, Garrison Beach, actually. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that, but maybe the guy who opened that place knew the history of the cars racing there and opened up his shop there. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> Possibly. Well. I'm going to bring on uh, somebody who is very familiar with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and that is the Brooklyn Trolley blogger, Mike LeColant. And he, is, he has a question for you that will help us uh, steer this, uh, no pun intended, in the next direction. Okay. <laughs> Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Ron. Good to be speaking with you again. Good morning. Uh, I do have a question, actually. I, I don't know how deep you got or, you know, I'm just – now getting on the line, but if you can educate us and tell us what you know about the Covenhoven line of the LIRR that serviced Manhattan Beach and Brighton Beach back in those days. What's the name of that line? The Covenhoven, uh, excuse me, K-O-U-V-E-N-H-O-V-E-N. Oh, oh, okay. Covenhoven is a Dutch name. And um, it would, there was a village in the Netherlands called Kallenhoven. And um, one, of the, um, one of the Dutchmen that bought land in Brooklyn, before it was Brooklyn, um, on June, June 16, 1636, was a gentleman named Wolfert Gerritsen van Kallenhoven. Mr. Gerritsen was from the village of Kallenhoven in the Netherlands. And a portion of King's Highway was once known as Kallenhoven Lane. And um, if you go into the graveyard of the Flatlands Reformed Church on King's Highway and East 40th Street, look at some of the gravestones there. By the way, the original church was built there in 1662. The current church on that site was completed in 1848. And some of the gravestones are engraved in Dutch. And one of them, I, in fact, I was there just about two weeks ago. One of them has, has the name of Maria Cowenhoven. And these are the, some of the original Dutch families that came here and settled in what we now call Kings County or Brooklyn. That's spectacular. Do you know where the uh, station stops along the way in Manhattan Beach and Brighton Beach were located? Um, well, Austin Corbin owned the Manhattan Beach division of the Long Island Railroad. And that line ran parallel with the Brighton Beach line. Now, Brighton Beach line was along East 16th Street. And Cowan, um, Austin Corbin's line um, ran along East 17th Street. In fact, if you go down East 17th Street in Sheepshead Bay, you're going to notice that that street, which is a one-way street, is wider than the other streets, the other yeah. uh, one-way streets, 
because that is where the Brighton, the Manhattan Beach tracks were. Remember, in those days, the tracks were on the street. They were not elevated. They, these, these were steam railroads with the big steam locomotive you see in the old, old movies on TV. So when, the, when um, Brooklyn became part of New York City in 1898 um, and developers started coming in and buying up the farmland um, and the area started to get developed, the city told the owners of the privately owned railroad you have to get these tracks off the street. It's too dangerous. That's when they started to elevate the tracks off the street. So the Brighton tracks and the Manhattan Beach tracks were just one block apart, both taking people to the big resort area, Brighton Beach, Manhattan Beach, Chipsha Bay, and Coney Island. That's upstairs. So the Long Island Railroad, is that, is that still uh, heading that way, or, or is that tracks just become part of the subway? Um, no, the Manhattan Beach tracks no longer exist. They're gone. In fact, if you go to, let's say, Avenue Z, Avenue Y, Neck, Gravesend Neck Road, um, if you go to those um, places right by East 16th Street, notice the concrete wall that the Brighton line is on, where the B and the Q train run. There's an extension to, those, to the wall. That extension is where the Manhattan Beach tracks were elevated alongside the Brighton tracks when the two railroads had to get the tracks off the street. The Brighton wow. tracks, they're uh. still there now, the B and the Q train. But the Manhattan Beach line was eventually eliminated. But the extension Michael, on that wall is there. You can else. still see where the tracks used to be. What was that, Sam? Sorry, sorry Ron. Uh, go ahead, Michael. No, that's that's fascinating. As uh, I'll be 54 next month. As a child, I remember the Myrtle Avenue L, and uh, I remember the L that went off the F line on McDonald Avenue and went down. Uh, oh, I think 37th Street, all the way down to the water, to the Army Terminal. I remember when that elevated uh, platform was still uh, up and standing, and they used to play bocce ball down on the street below. Uh, but my next question and my last question was, um, you know, Brooklyn and especially Brighton Beach and a couple other neighborhoods were hotbeds of semi-pro baseball. I know Brighton Beach fielded a team, uh, the Bay Parkways, amongst other teams. But do you know where the Brighton Beach Oval, where they played baseball, was located? No, I don't know where that was. Um there are some old maps that might show an oval, but um, I'm not sure. Um, I, I never heard of the Brighton Beach Oval where they played uh, baseball. I don't know about that one. Well, oval is just a term that they seem to use for, for fields. And because of the city configurations, you always had like uh, a short left field or a very long left field and a short right field or vice versa. So I was just curious, but uh, – if anything you can add about the semi-pro days back then, that would be spectacular. Oh, sure, absolutely. Well, there were a lot of um, um, there were a lot of teams all all around. Um, you had, um, let's see, well, there were right on the Brooklyn Queens border. There was a park called Dexter Park, where they played uh, played baseball. And then you had Washington Park number one, and then Washington Park number two. Washington Park 
is where the Brooklyn Baseball Club played, and that was located um, in the Park Slope-Gowanus area on 5th Avenue and 3rd Street. And um, um, it's named after George Washington. And the Brooklyn Baseball Club eventually, eventually became the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, and one of the one of the fellows that worked there in the 1880s and 1890s was a fellow named Charles Ebbets. And as a young man, Charles Ebbets, and I'm sure you people listening know who that was, um, he started by sweeping the floors and taking tickets and everything, and eventually he became president of the club. And uh, Washington Park was a wooden structure. It sat maybe, oh, maybe 10 or 12,000 people. But by 1912, 1911, 1912, he wanted a new modern ballpark. And he didn't have enough money to build it. So he got in touch with a, two brothers who were contractors and builders. Um, Edward, um, I'm trying to think, Edward and I forgot the other brother's name. Uh, their last name was McKeever. And the McKeever brothers and Ebbets together with their money, uh, they, uh, Ebbets offered the McKeever brothers 50% stock in the team if they would help finance building a new ballpark. And they accepted. And that's how Ebbets Field got built for $750,000. Um, and it opened on April, April the 9th. Um, 1913. Uh, it, it's always fascinating going down this uh, this road and, and how and, and, and especially with the way that that baseball uh, has kind of been broken down when it comes to to these specialized local teams. Uh, uh, you know, it's really becoming way too quickly uh, a thing of the past and us Brooklynites are, are certainly lucky especially now that we're going to have uh, baseball out there for a full season and, and um, I'm hoping that just uh, even if it's only like 2,000 people for the 10,000 seater that we're going to be able to take uh, uh, what, what will be in many ways uh, a higher level of baseball than we've been used to uh, nothing to take away from the kids coming out of college um, but, you know, Mike, I, I appreciate you going there uh, with the semi-pro and, and Brighton itself. Thank you for having me on. Uh, of course. And, and, and I'm going to go, by all means, stick around, Mike, and, and anything else that comes up, I'll loop around your way. Uh, I, you know, looking, I always uh, go to the map whenever we're talking about all these things and try to get, uh, you know, as best as we can in this modern age uh, to the actual corners from a digital perspective. And what I'm seeing right now, Ron, is the fact that there is a section right to the uh, west of Brighton Beach called West Brighton. If you could go in a little bit about this, you know, the further you zoom in on these maps, uh, the, the, the tighter some of these neighborhoods become. Yeah. Um, Ocean Parkway separates Brighton Beach Avenue going east from West Brighton Beach Avenue, um, which goes towards West 5th Street. Um, um, 
that's that's where uh, that's where the um, the the western edge of the Brighton Beach racetrack used to be by Ocean Parkway, um, and uh, so West Brighton Beach Avenue was cut through after Brighton Beach Avenue was cut through. So they just you know separated it and made it and made it West Bright what West Brighton Beach Avenue. Well, I I be remiss. Uh, politics aside, if I didn't mention that basically right there on, uh, let's see what street this is. Um, well, one, one way or another, it looks like we have Trump Village Estates and Trump Village Section 4 on either side of uh, Mar- uh, Marsha R- Rappaport Way. And this, is, and this is going all the way back to Fred Trump. Yes, this is, this is Donald's father built the uh, the Trump Village over there, the, the high-rise apartments. And uh, I, I knew somebody that was living there and said that a lot of people didn't want it to be known by that name anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, but, um, right, of course. <laughs> but when that was being built, it was right adjacent to Abraham Lincoln High School, my alma mater. And um, next to the high school was... A, a a sandwich and coffee shop, and uh, the students called it the sweet shop. Although I never went in there, um, a lot of kids used to play hooky and go in there. And one day they came, and the whole structure was bulldozed, and it was gone because Fred Trump bought the property to build his Trump Village apartments. That was in the early 1960s. And I graduated. I graduated Lincoln in 1962, so I remember when that thing was bulldozed and it was gone. Hmm. Uh, Mike, do you have anything to add? No, not really. Other than uh, Fred Trump was in possession of Steeplechase Park when it burnt down for the last time and decided not to rebuild. I can't imagine nope. why he would do that, but. <laughs> Go ahead, Ron. Well, Fred Trump bought the property of Steeplechase Park, and um, um, his goal was to have it, the area rezoned so he can build a high-rise complex there. If that was what he did, was to build, build buildings and apartments. And um, the city was hemming and hawing and reneging and really didn't want to rezone the area. So Fred Trump realizing that he's paying taxes on the land and he can't do anything with it. um, He wanted to make sure that steeplechase could not be resurrected. If, if it, if it came to that, the steeplechase closed after the 1964 season and, um, so Fred Trump had a big, big uh, party where women were wearing gowns and men were wearing tuxedos and bikini clad uh, women were walking around, with, you know, selling cigarettes and all kinds of stuff. It was all indoors in the, the, the indoor pavilion of Steeplechase Park so that the park could not be utilized again. Fred Trump had at the entrance at a certain designated time near the end of the evening gala, 
he asked each of the guests to grab a brick and throw the bricks through all of the, as many windows as they can of that enclosure. And that was the end of that building uh, known as the Pavilion of Fun of Steeplechase Park. That was Donald's father that did that, Fred Trump. If you want to know more about that, the best book ever written on the history of Coney Island is called Coney Island Lost and Found by Charles Charles Denson, D-E-N-S-O-N, Charles Denson, Coney Island Lost and Found. There's history of Brighton Beach in there as well, but it's the story in there of um, what happened to Coney Island and Brighton Beach, it's all in there. And Charles Denson lived in Coney Island in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, and he took photographs all during the demise of the area showing buildings on fire and houses burning down. And that was the end of the Coney Island in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and he, a lot of his photographs are in the book. He now lives in Berkeley, California, and he taught at the University of California at Ber- Berkeley. But he comes back every summer because he helped establish um, the Coney Island um, uh, History Project, Coney Island History Project. And that's located um, on West 12th Street, I think, uh, right near the boardwalk. It's closed now, of course, because Coney Island is, but hopefully Coney Island will come back again this summer, as will the Brooklyn Cyclones, we hope. Exactly. Uh, um, I'm wondering if you have any tidbits on um, Asser Levy Park, uh, both the park and who uh, the park is named after. Well, those of you who don't know, um, when you drive down Ocean Parkway towards Coney Island, right where, Coney, uh, right where Ocean Parkway ends, there's a sharp right turn onto Surf Avenue taking you into Coney Island. There's a big park there, a big open park. That was always parkland. It has never, ever been built on, ever. I have a 19... 19- uh, a, a 1900 photograph that shows it as an open piece of land. Um, and it always remained open land. Asher Levy was one of 24 Jews that came here in, um, I'm guessing the date now. Um, I think it was in 16... 1664, I'm not sure of the date, but it was in the early to middle 1600s, and he was one of 24 Jews that came here from Recife, Brazil, and Mr. Levy bought land in New Amsterdam, in Manhattan, um, and I'm sorry, he lived in New Amsterdam, bought land in Brooklyn, but never lived in Brooklyn. So Asher Levy Park is named after him. But it's always been parkland. Wow. And so th- it's unbelievable that, that it, it's uh, a Jewish man going all the way back to the 1600s when it comes to Brooklyn. And, and just, you know, saying, just showing that there's been Jewish roots in Brooklyn from basically the beginning, or at least in terms of, of the beginning of, of the white man being here. Well, Sam, there's, there's more to that story. 
because when, when those 24 Jews came to New Amsterdam, um, the governor of New Amsterdam, uh, Peter Stuyvesant, he didn't want the Jews there. He wanted to send them back to get them out of here. But a lot of the uh, Dutch residents in New Amsterdam, they said, we need more people. We need craftspeople. We need merchants. We need butchers. We need this. We need that. Well, there was no Internet back then, so a ship was sent back to the Netherlands and with a message to the king about that Peter Stuyvesant wanted to send the Jews away. And, and that took three months for the ship to get there and another three months for the ship to come back. And the message was the Jews are to remain. And the reason is the Dutch West India Company that sent the Dutch to settle here, a lot of that Dutch West India Company was being financed by the Jews in the Netherlands. So there's the Jewish connection right there. That's unbelievable. Mike, do you have anything to add? Uh, I don't. You know, I, I really can't add too much to what you guys said, uh, you know, and I don't want to put out misinformation on things I'm only half educated on. But uh, I do agree. And if you want to go into the history of the pilgrims, did they really leave from English shores or did they leave from the the, the Netherlands? Well, they came. Well, right. they, they were Dutch. They came on Dutch ships. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of this that uh, uh, the biggest uh, of Brighton Beach in pop culture has to be uh, biggest when it comes to the Brighton Beach Memoirs trilogy. Um, and for so many years, I always thought that Neil Simon grew up in Brighton Beach and that he was from Brooklyn, but I'm looking here at his page right now, and it says he was originally from the Bronx. Well, well, maybe they moved to Brooklyn. I, I'm not sure where he, well, if he was from the Bronx, I'm wondering if the family moved to Brooklyn. I don't know. We'll have to check that out. Well, if you could talk about Brighton Beach Memoirs and, and what it did for the name Brighton Beach in pop culture. Well, I'm not sure what it did for pop culture. Um, well, wait a minute. Let me change that. What about Neil Sadaka? Neil Sadaka went to from, Abraham Lincoln High School. Yes. Neil Sadaka, in fact, his parents had a concession stand right at the very tip of Coney Island Avenue, right adjacent to the boardwalk, and it was called Sadaka's. So Neil Sadaka uh. went to Abraham Lincoln High School. He lived in Brighton Beach. And um, when uh, former borough president Marty Markowitz had his wonderful concerts every summer, um, I remember when Neil Sadaka came to perform, he said that, He's, that he's home here in Brighton Beach. That's where he lived. And he went to Abraham Lincoln High School. And a whole bunch of people in the audience would yell out, we went to Lincoln. And I was one of them. <laughs> and by the way, um, Neil Sadaka's song, Oh Carol, if those of you who know the song, is named for Carol King, the singer Carol King, whose real name was Carol Klein. So there's another connection right there. 
And, you know, it's interesting, speaking of uh, the Jews, um, Mike, we talked about with Howard Kalman, uh, the great broadcaster of a AAA affiliation, uh, we talked about how so many people during the, the 20th century uh, changed their name so their Jewish roots w- was not completely at the foreground just because of the reception uh, 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 of people in a negative manner to the Jews. Yeah, yeah that's well, true. anti-Semitism was alive and well, and that's not to say it's going away. Yep, exactly. Um, Neil Sedaka is, is very interesting. I've once heard about how he, he made such an imprint on uh, uh, pop music, uh, but, you know, had it, been, had it been more popular, he would have just been a classical pianist. That's true. But um, he wrote song. He wrote songs not only for himself to sing, but he wrote songs for other singers as well. Right. And uh, and he's uh, he still sings. I'm not sure how much he does anymore. And, and if you want to laugh, yeah. I became familiar with Neil Sedaka a through my sister because she's eight years older than me. So I lived her teenage uh-huh. years. I became familiar with Neil Sedaka through a show called Wonderama that came on on Sunday mornings. On and, Channel 5. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and in the age before music videos, well, there you go, Wonderama. Every so often would have a musical guest, and he was one. Huh. Yeah. It's uh, fascinating stuff, uh, you know, one, just in terms of Brighton Beach, but, of course, how much of Brooklyn comes all the way. It's not just one in six Americans can trace their roots back to Brooklyn. It is so, so much at the foreground of 20th century popular culture. Um, I, I don't think, one, I don't think a lot of people really understand uh, now. And, and two, my, myself included, I'm always, you know, it's just like yet another one for Brooklyn with, with name after name after name that you hear. Uh, it, I, I love this place. Well, Brooklyn has got so much going for it. And I'll tell you, with, with the way this pandemic has caused so many people to remain at home, there are so many things here in Brooklyn. Um, my wife and I, we went on our first road trip last week. You know what the road trip was? To Staten Island to get our vaccine shot. <laughs> that was our road trip. <laughs> and we're so thankful that you did. And uh, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, firstly, um, I, I want to thank you, Ron, for, for coming on and giving us uh, a little bit of the Brighton Beach history. Uh, but before I, I loop back around to you, I'm going to go to Mike for his last word. I celebrate every day I live in Brooklyn. That's my last word. I, I still love this place with all my heart. It's a wonderful place, the most diverse place on planet Earth. Uh, and every day is a new adventure. You know what? Speaking of adventure, Mike, I, I'd, like, I'd like to suggest something to Mike, to Sam, and anyone else who's listening here in Brooklyn. Um, because of the pandemic, you really can't get out and go anyplace. But there, is, there are places you can go to outdoors that are absolutely wonderful, full of nature. Since last April, my wife and I on a, on a weekend that is available without uh, bad weather, 
we have gone to Prospect Park. Now, Prospect Park has become crowded with a lot of joggers and bicycle riders and women with the strollers. That's fine. But if you go off the roads and walk into the woods, there are trails. Um, I have a map that shows all of the hiking trails in the woods of Prospect Park. And it is absolutely stunning and gorgeous. And we did this from the spring with the flowers growing, the different birds we saw. And believe it or not, there are chipmunks running around. Um, we did it uh, up until the hot summer when it was too hot. Then in the fall, with the leaves changing, we did it. And we saw, again, birds migrating and the leaves changing. And there are so many different trails that are, some of them are pretty steep and some are nice and flat and smooth. And it's worth it to get out there and do that. And also, go to Marine Park. Park in the parking lot on Avenue U, um, up across the street from the Nature Center. And go behind the Nature Center, and there's like a, like a one-mile walking trail through the, through the marshland area. And it is spectacular. You wouldn't even know you're in Brooklyn. So get, out the, get outdoors. If it's cold, bundle up. And it's worth it to see the nature here in Brooklyn. Thank and you for you that, asked. Ron. Um, of course, exactly. And, and one more time before I go back over to you, Ron, uh, I want to go to Mike. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you for a shameless plug. Well, you can catch me at the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger.blogspot.com. Just a little spin on the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers. Uh, and if I may, just pick up real quick where Ron left off. Go to the waterfront as well. You can walk the boardwalk in Brighton Beach and Coney Island. You can do the promenade yes. from Bensonhurst all the way to Bay Ridge. Skip That's over right. We, we did the boardwalk in Coney Island, Brighton Beach. We Whoa. did that as well. Right. Go to Brooklyn Bridge Park and, and underneath the Brooklyn and Manhattan bridges. Skip over to Williamsburg and head to the waterfront over there. You can be outside, in parks, you know, stay socially distanced and, and still have a lot of fun outdoors. Uh, yes. We, we did we did Brooklyn Bridge Park, and we went actually into Queens to the Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge. It's right off Cross Bay Boulevard, and um, it's and we saw um, an, um, a hawk perched in one of the trees there. So it was really quite interesting. Just use your imagination. Get outside. There's so much to do here, more so here than per, perhaps anywhere else in this country, <laughs> in, in such a uh, small uh, location. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Ron, uh, like we, yes, like, we le- love to say here on this podcast and uh, the other podcast, uh, a Metzian podcast for a shameless plug on my behalf, on our behalf, Mike. Um, Ron, if you could give uh, our listeners uh, both your shameless plug and your last word. Um, let's see. Uh, for, well... <laughs> I mean, I'm enjoying seeing Bernie Sanders with his mittens on in all kinds of environments. <laughs> I'm sure many of you have seen that. And uh, a friend of mine has a picture of him sitting in front of her house now. <laughs> um, and uh, my final word, um, well, go, going back to... Um, um, where old Washington Park used to be, when, when you are able to get out and go to museums again, um, 
on Fifth Avenue and Third Street. There's a playground there called J.J. Byrne Park. And in that park, there's an old stone house. That old stone house was the site of the Battle of Brooklyn during the Revolutionary War. It was built in 1699, all right? In the 1880s and 1890s, it was the clubhouse for the Brooklyn Baseball Club, which eventually became the Brooklyn Dodgers, okay? Right after the turn of the century, it was torn down, the stones were buried, and it was gone. During the Depression in the 1930s, Mr. J.J. Byrne, borough president of Brooklyn, got some money from the government during the WPA, Works Progress Administration, to establish a playground. During the excavation to construct the playground, they unearthed these original stones, these large stones. And someone fortunately knew what they were, and they rebuilt the original old stone house from 1699 using the original stones, and it is, it is now a museum open to the public, although I don't think it's open now because of the pandemic, but inside is the entire history of the Battle of Brooklyn that was fought at that site in August of 1776. And in there also is a history of when it was the clubhouse for the Brooklyn Baseball Club. So Fifth Avenue and Third Street in the Park Slope Gowanus area. Go over, take a look at it. I don't think it's open now, but when it becomes open, go in there and you'll have a fantastic history lesson on the Battle of Brooklyn and the Brooklyn Baseball Club, which became the Brooklyn Dodgers. Beautiful stuff. Uh, Ron, as always, Ron Schweiger, Brooklyn Borough historian, thank you so much for joining us and giving us a, a history lesson to our our uh, listeners as well as myself and Mike LaColon. Um And uh, heed his words, everybody out there that is in the tri-state area, head over to Brooklyn, and uh, like he said, you know, uh, the cold is not an excuse. Bundle up, wear your mask, and stay safe and healthy, and get on out there and see the great former city of Brooklyn. Thank you all very much. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Ron.